0: Okay. I think it's 4 o'clock. And again, everyone can hear me okay? No, you can't? Okay. All right. If a couple of people in the back. We'll go with the mic then. How's that? Is that better? Okay. Excellent. Good. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming all the way over here for this talk, kind of late in the day when you're probably already exhausted after all sorts of interactions. Uh, My name's Steve Mannock. I'm a family physician. I've been a family doc for about 30 years, And I've pretty much split my time between uh, overseas work for about 10 or 12 years, um, and um, serving in challenging urban environments for about 10 years, and also rural practice for about eight and a half years. Um, But my talk here is going to focus more on the time that I spent in Ecuador uh, as a missionary doc for, for 10 years. I am not a trained ethicist. Other than a course here and some reading here, we're just going to keep this really practical. And hopefully it'll be it'll be helpful for folks. So just so I have a better idea about how or who you all are, are um, so how many of you are students? Okay, and that's a good group. Are you like uh, undergrads or? Yeah, okay, right. So how many folks have served overseas in healthcare missions for let's say a year or more? Great. So I'm going to be like relying on a lot of you <laughs> because I think what's going to happen is you're going to see situations that are kind of familiar. And you're going to help us hopefully work through some of these uh, scenarios that we're going to talk about. But why don't we pray before we get started. Lord, I thank you so much that you choose to use us as imperfect people to work in this world and uh, have a witness for you. And the the privilege that it is to help bring healing. Um, Thank you that you are gracious toward us. And I pray that you'd be with us during this this time. In your son's name. Yeah. All right. Okay, so um, we've got a few objectives today. The main thing is what we're going to do is we're going to talk through eight or ten actual cases that I have personally been involved in. Some of them are specific cases. Some of them are composites. And again, for those of you who have served um, in Uh, developing world settings. A lot of these are going to seem kind of familiar. You might have your own kind of spin on them. And for those of you who haven't done much service overseas, this hopefully will prepare you because if you do, you will have difficult situations. I can can guarantee it. What we're going to do is we're going to identify some applicable principles of medical ethics um, for each of those um, difficult scenarios and recognize and to me this is the most important, recognize how really disturbing it can be when you face these situations. You know, those of us who have trained, prepared, um, moved overseas, we're trying to do the very best we can, and yet we run into these situations that can be really, really difficult. So I'm going to start out with the four basic principles of medical ethics. I'm not claiming that these are biblical principles, but I do think that they're influenced um, by biblical thoughts and ideas. Um, And for those of us that have been in medical training pretty much any time in the last 40 years, uh, we're familiar with these. And so that's kind of where a lot of us start, a lot of Westerners start, when we face a lot of these issues. So just briefly, we've got the principle of beneficence. So essentially what we're trying to say is we try to do the most good we can for the folks that we serve, all right, and we shouldn't take that for granted because, frankly, there are times and places in the practice of medicine where this has always not always been the case, and there's a lot of folks that are still suffering. Um, and then non-maleficence is trying to avoid doing harm, and oftentimes it's a balance of these things. We we would like to give this medical treatment, whether it's surgery or medication, but there's always a risk of doing some harm, and so we, harm. So we try to balance these two ideas. And then the third principle is justice. And justice has to do with the, the fair allocation of medical resources. So this is a goal. It's a goal that we oftentimes don't see acted out, even in the US for instance, where we see some folks who have more financial capabilities getting better care and doing better. So we don't have this all figured out even even in this country. And then autonomy, this is one of those things that we come up against a lot and, and I think is one of the more difficult things that we face. But it's also important, and the principle of autonomy is that informed, competent adults have the right to make their own decisions regarding healthcare. care. Um, and, um, and again, that can sometimes be very frustrating when we don't agree with the decision that they make. Um, so again, these, these are the principles uh, Bochamp and Childress, like for, for 40 years, they've proposed these, and I think their medical ethics book is up to its like seventh or eighth edition. This is pretty much what's taught. So in a developing world setting, some of the challenges is that the, the general ethical principles are oftentimes based on Western realities, um, beliefs, and values. Um, they don't automatically work everywhere, even though this is what we're trained. And also, experience in the developing world setting impacts the risk-benefit assessment. So whereas for some of us, you know, the thought of getting a hernia fixed, we're like, hey, this is easy, you know, we fix hernias all the time. But you might be dealing with folks who, yeah, they have a relative or a neighbor who went in for what was a simple surgery and they didn't survive. So so we have to understand that our our assessment is potentially going to be different from the folks that we're we're working with. And also... The fact that we don't have all sorts of choices as far as the care that we provide. There might be limited or unreliable resources um, that are going to impact the care that we can provide. And social class, in a lot of places, really does affect the quality of care that, that people get. If you have resources, you can get to the capital city, probably get pretty good care. Maybe you get on a plane, go to Europe or the States, and you can get good care, but that's not available for everybody. And also, this principle of autonomy is really geared toward individual, individualistic societies, which a lot of us come from. Uh, whereas in other settings, it's going to be a group decision, or per- potentially like a leader in the family or the clan that's going to make that decision. So I have a colleague that refers to this as autonomy by proxy. <laughs> so folks have, still have the ability to make that decision, but they can defer that decision to somebody else in authority. And, you know, it sort of makes sense because our individual decisions do have a broader impact. So having somebody uh, or having a group make that decision sometimes can be pretty appropriate. Okay, and, and then another principle that I want to add um, is mutual respect. So this doesn't mean that we automatically agree with the way people do that, you know, make these decisions where we're serving. But we do recognize the value of other people's beliefs, experience, and practice, and we try to work out toward some sort of mutually acceptable understanding about what we're going to do in this difficult situation. Uh, some people now talk about cultural humility. Um, you know, that, that's kind of a similar sort of idea that we don't always have maybe the best way uh, of looking at things, and, and we want to hear and understand from other folks. So what i found helpful is to have a knowledgeable cultural navigator uh where you're serving so i had a great knowledgeable cultural navigator uh who was one of our assistant uh administrators at the hospital where i served mature man um, and he had seen you know missionaries come and go and when there was really difficult situations he was the kind of person i could go into his office and say don marco i don't understand this this is really, really difficult. And he would patiently explain and give me some ideas about what I could do. Another real issue, and I, I think this is particularly important for folks doing short-term work, but it applies to folks doing longer-term missions work as well, is maintaining um, an appropriate scope of practice. So I, I think sometimes you know, we get the idea that we're going to this remote place and they just have no health care at all. And it is so good that, that I showed up there. And even though I haven't treated a kid for 20 years since medical school, I'm the one to do it. You know, So we need to be careful. Now, now, that said, I think all of us in uh, missionary medicine are going to be stretched. I mean, there's no way that we're going to know about everything and have all sorts of experience uh, treating some of the conditions we encounter. But hopefully we've got other colleagues that have been there that can come alongside us and also, we might find that our facility just is not well-equipped to, to treat the condition that's in front of us. And, there, and we really have to explore some other options in country. It all gets pretty complicated, and we'll get into this a little bit with some of these cases that I'm going to present. So what I'd like to do, again, going back to some of the objectives, is we're going to kind of remember those general principles uh, of, of ethics. We're going to talk about some of these cases and see which of those principles maybe applies and then um, and see if there's a way forward that hopefully would make a similar situation for you a little less disturbing. So audience participation is required here. <laughs> so I know it's kind of late in the day, but I do want to hear about what people are thinking. So you ready to jump in? Okay, no fear in the room. All right, good. Okay, so... Here's a case that I had, and we actually had several cases similar to this. A 24-year-old married father of four presents to your mission hospital with fever, leukocytosis, which is a high white count, and a gangrenous foot, cellulitis of the lower leg, 12 days after having suffered a machete wound to the foot. You advise amputation in your hospital's well-equipped OR by your experienced surgeon, who concurs, but the patient refuses. Okay, so the folks that aren't real far along in their medical training, essentially this is a man who, uh, he's got a gangrenous foot, so that foot is not going to get better, as best we can say using our medical judgment. And now he has evidence of sepsis, so he's going to get increasingly sick and potentially die. But he says no. Okay, so what, what ethical principle are we heading up against here right now? Autonomy. Autonomy, Absolutely. Okay, and why in the world, so I guess this is the question, why in the world would this man say, no, I will not have my foot amputated? Because obviously it just makes the most sense to me in the world, and and the surgeon who does amputations all the time is ready to take the patient to the OR. We've got everything we need to take care of him and give him the best care possible. So what's going on here? Ma'am? Yeah. Yeah. That's great, Yeah. So any ideas where why somebody potentially might not want an amputation? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So for a lot of, for a lot of people if they're, you know, laborers, if they hunt, if they fish, if they're farmers, you know, cannot figure, you know, cannot imagine what life would be like without a foot. And, and there could be some denial going on here. You know, he might have tried a variety of other treatments and he came to the hospital hearing that there was good care and was really hopeful that we could save his foot. Any other comments about what else is going on? Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry? Is it, yeah, that's interesting. So expand on that. Thanks for that. Okay, so so you got another comment. Okay, so kind of a little more fatalistic sort of approach. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. All right. Good. So so you got this man. Another comment. So again we saw several different folks in similar kinds of situations. So, you know, you talk through all of this, you try to understand his yes, he's got fear about this, he's not sure how he's going to work, but he says absolutely no, he's not going to have his foot cut off. So now what do you do? Say, "Hey, go home, come on back when you think you want to get that done." Or
1: <laughs>
0: Sure. Comfort care. What you're proposing? Sure, Nick. Yeah. Okay. You've done all that. He still says no. <laughs> now, any any ideas? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I love that. And that, that was the sort of thing we would try to do for folks like this. So bring him in and say, hey, I, I really don't think that the antibiotics are going to work, but let's give it a try. You know, and you're probably going to need some IV fluids, and, you know, we're going to treat his, his, make him more comfortable. Um, and then we had situations like this where, and again, honestly, <laughs> to this day, I don't know if our staff were involved with this or it was just, you know, kind of a miraculous sort of thing. Where we'd have somebody like this in the hospital refusing, and then like a, a family member of another patient would come in, and lo and behold, they had lost a limb, you know, and they had, you know, uh, and, and they could go, and we would bring them in, and they would talk with the patient and say, you know, this wooden leg isn't half bad. I can still get around, and I can I can do things. And yeah, some of these folks eventually would would come around. Some wouldn't. There was a patient one time. This gets even harder. There was a child that needed. Their leg amputated. And all the way, you know, they said no all the way to the end and the the child died. Um, So these are really, really hard circumstances. But sure, I mean, we would do what we could. We would try to help them know that this just isn't going to work. Let's see if it'll work. If it doesn't, a lot of times they would come around and eventually get the treatment. But it wasn't guaranteed. Not always real satisfying. Yeah. And sometimes, by the time they would accept the amputation, it was too late, and we would lose the patient. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that wasn't an option where we were. Yeah. Okay, we've got like eight or ten cases, but one more comment, man. your family
1: yeah
0: yeah yeah no I got it. okay so we're gonna keep moving along thanks for all the comments this is this is great and I' I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up about helping the patient think about his family as well. okay good so sometimes we win sometimes we lose on those. And speaking of sometimes winning and losing. Now the computer doesn't want to advance. Why does it not want to advance? Here we go. So, uh, again, real case. Three months ago, your mission hospital leadership had tense negotiations with local health authorities, which led to an agreement to open your OR to local physicians for their use on an as-needed basis. Late one evening, a local OBGYN arrives at your hospital with a term prime episode. First, first pregnancy uh, in latent phase labor, so she's in very early labor. And the OBGYN is requesting permission to perform an urgent C section because she is, quote, HPV positive. I don't know how many OB providers we have here. So she had human papillomavirus, not, not herpes, okay? And uh, a C section has been planned throughout the pregnancy, and the OR at the OBGYN's hospital is closed indefinitely due to maintenance issues. Okay, so, uh, yeah, again, for folks that aren't too far along in their training or maybe don't provide OB care, uh, in this country that would not be an indication at all to do a C-section if somebody had an HPV test, human papillomavirus test that was positive. If they had active general herpes, that would be an indication. So now it's your hospital, you're on call, the local OBGYN comes in and says, yeah, I, I need your OR for, for a C-section. So this this is a case that really happened. So ethical principles that are at play here? Yeah, non maleficence as well. No, no. Our OR is open. At the mission hospital, our OR is, is open. We got our OR staff. We've got all the we've got everything we need. They actually I remember this. They actually brought like a bunch of surgical instruments and things in case we didn't have them. It's like, no, you can you can hang on to those. If, if it comes to this, we've got our own stuff here. Alright, so again, so the question is, are we putting this woman at risk for harm by getting an unneed an unnecessary C section? It is a very this is an OBGYN. Apparently he does this all the time. He does C sections all the time. Okay, now what? So now we're stuck. We don't want to do harm. Yeah? Be safer for the have the c section at, at our mission hospital as opposed to going. Yeah, of course, that other one's not even an option. Yes, sir. Yeah, I don't think we knew at the time. I think we were just like really shocked. So, actually, I didn't ha- have this case. I heard about it on rounds the next morning and was pretty steamed, frankly. But uh, there was another comment. Yes, ma'am. interesting. And I think like now in OB care, there are actually OB providers in this country now that will offer people C-sections and lots of other countries without an, an, uh, a real indication. So that's interesting. So yeah, the plan was she thought all along she's getting a C-section when she goes into labor. So, yes, sir. True. so I oh yeah
1: mm.
0: and, and then they'll go <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that would be challenging so I've given this another comment So not such a bad risk for the for the woman.
1: principle and to do
0: it. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So I've given this talk before and some people have brought up well, why don't you take the woman aside and have a discussion with her about the risks or benefits? or the reason to do this procedure or not. How do you think about that? Yeah, so, so it'd be actually better, and we would say better informed consent. So, so what I should say is from the medical side, this has been studied up and down, meta-analyses. There's no advantage. Uh, you don't have decreased vertical transmission of HPV by doing a C-section. However, there are a few outlier studies over the last 20 years, that suggests that potentially it could be beneficial. Yeah, yeah, and no one's brought up. We were kind of in the middle of this political situation with local health authorities. So is essentially is this a hill to die on? Do we say, no way are you doing a C-section on this lady? And now all of a sudden, we're into it again. Um, So how this one turned out was the medical director of the hospital was on call that night, and he went ahead and said, yeah, we'll let you do the C-section. He was in the OR with with the patient, received the baby, made sure that they had everything that they needed. And mom and baby did well, and they went home about three hours postpartum. And then, um, well, not home, I'm sorry. They got transferred back to the hospital. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. They got transferred back to the, to the local hospital where they continued to get post-op care and, and newborn care. Sorry about that. And then, then the rest of us got there the next morning and some of us were fuming about this. But, you know, so anyway, that's, that's, how, that one, that's how that one went. Okay. All right, a 43-year-old woman presents to the ER of your rural hospital, these are all in Ecuador, after being involved in a motor vehicle accident in which she was the driver. She was wearing a seat belt and driving about 30 miles an hour, or 30 kilometers an hour, so I guess a little over 20 miles an hour or so. Both vehicles had minimal damage. She has no complaints, sustained no injuries, and your physical exam is entirely normal. We don't pan CT scan, folks. Enroll Hospital in Ecuador for the emergency room providers that are confused by this. Um, So as you prepare to discharge her, she becomes anxious and states that she has had some chest pain and would like to be hospitalized. So so there's no insurance companies to deal with about things being authorized or no authorized. Um, You do have limited beds at the hospital. You can't hospitalize everybody that wants to be hospitalized. So what in the world I'm just gonna go ahead and say kind of justice is sort of the issue here about good use of your resources. You know, should we admit this person that we don't think needs to be admitted to the hospital. Anyone have any ideas about what to do in this situation? Yes. Yeah, so that she's been tot- she's been totally evaluated. you thought she was ready to go. There there's nothing that looks scary about her. We'll say that once she co- uh, yeah, I mean, it, now that she's talking about testing, let's say we did an EKG and a chest film and it was clean as a whistle. Everything looks good. And and actually the first proponent was negative too. Yes. And that's a great that's a great thought. And and you're you've almost got it. Anyone have any other ideas?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> hmm. Okay. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Ooh, so she could be threatened. So there is actually a threat going on here. And, and at this time, what would happen is if you were in a motor vehicle accident um, and you were not hospitalized, you would be put in jail until the whole thing was sorted out as far as who's, who's you know, at fault or not. And frankly, at at that point in time and where we were working, if you went in jail, suddenly you had police to pay, lawyers to pay, and judges to pay. Plus, potentially, if there were any injuries for the other party, there would be another group of folks to pay. So, but if you were in the hospital, you didn't have to be. uh, You you wouldn't get put in jail. All right. And again, we didn't realize this at all. This is actually another a case of a, of a co-worker. Dr. Martin's case. Okay. A couple of our residents are here. But, um, and again, he was like, no way I'm admitting this lady. She's fine. This is great. So actually, uh, we had a sister hospital in the capital city, and they had a whole program for this. They said we, we're going to allot a certain number of beds. When we, get to, to, when we cap that number of beds, if we've got like eight people in the hospital because they don't want to be in prison. We can't take any more, and you have to get this all figured out in three days. So that's what we did. And again, we had no idea what was going on. But you start asking around. It's like, oh, this makes sense. This is why she wants to be in the hospital. And and she you know, and her family were paying the small amount that it, it costs to stay in the hospital and get a bed and three meals. Kind of interesting. And by the way, when missionaries got in car accidents, we figured out that they needed to be admitted to the hospital too. Okay, so this is a case that happened to me. I just got into this mission hospital. This is wonderful. I'm in this Christian mission hospital. This is going to be, oh, I've dreamed of this my whole life. A woman in her early 20s presents to your mission hospital requesting a syphilis test. She says she was recently treated with more than five injections of IM penicillin. Um, She has lab reports from a variety of hospitals showing several positive FTA abs tests. So it is confirmed that she had had syphilis and declining RPR levels. And again, based on your training, that's what we like to see. Confirmed syphilis, you treat them, the RPR levels come down markedly, and we say, yeah, good treatment. So that's over the past two months she's had these RPR levels that are falling. She also shows you results of an HIV test, hepatitis B test, and gonorrhea test. Those were all negative. We didn't have chlamydia tests. Her RPR is positive today with a tighter one-to-one, which is about as low as you can get. It is as low as you can get without, without being positive. So after you tell her she does not need any more treatment for syphilis, she returns with her employer, who says that she cannot return to work at the brothel without a negative syphilis test and requests that you write a letter to the Ministry of Health stating that her RPR test is negative okay (laughs) I know I was a little surprised (laughs) so ethical principles going on here should we write a letter so she can get back to work should we write a letter saying her RPR is negative even though it's not right yeah and you know Lots of times when I was there, especially patients I knew, would say, proceed, you know, can't you just like give us this letter? I mean, even for for more benign things than this. Or can't you just do this for us? I mean, you're a good friend. You've got a good doctor to us. And I would get back to, yeah, no, I I'm I'm not gonna lie about this. Okay. So so what would you do? Yeah. Yeah. right now but if I write that letter that might mean that she goes back to work yeah I don't think she's contagious how do people feel about doing that saying yeah she doesn't have active syphilis so she can present to the ministry of health, so she can go back to work by the way I don't think she's being trafficked that's, that's the question I mean I always wonder is anybody involved in sex work are they doing this by choice but she did not seem like she was in a a dangerous situation as far as being trafficked that was my opinion at the time Right. So, again, what happens when you treat folks, then the RPR level comes down, and then you normally like to check, like, about 6 to 12 months later to make sure it stays down. But we had evidence. I mean, she came, in like, with prescriptions about all the injections of penicillin that she had had. So she had really gotten good treatment, and the RPR level had come down. But since it wasn't completely negative, the concern was that she wouldn't get a clean bill of health so, so that she couldn't go back to work. How do your supporters back home? How would they respond <laughs> to the fact that you wrote a letter so this lady could Well True. Yeah. So I can tell you what I ended up doing after sort of recovering from the shock of this request. I did say that although she does have a positive RPR test, there is no evidence of current infection. It was kind of, I was kind of doing my doctor job, and I wasn't real happy about it, but that's what I ended up doing. Oh.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah that, that's a, a really good question. What I can say is that the Ministry of Health would routinely... Uh, test folks for, for all the STDs that they could, um, folks that were working there at the brothel. And and again, her problem was she couldn't get the RPR to negative so that the Ministry of Health wouldn't give her a clean bill of health to go back to work. So kind of in the end, I could say, yeah, no, her RPR is not negative. I don't think she has an active infection. So she might not have actually been able to go back to work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But potentiating her return to work, is that non maleficent? Is that beneficent? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, all right, so again, there there are hard situations you will encounter or you've already encountered uh, that can be difficult. Let's keep marching along. You are working as the only physician in a recently reopened small mission hospital located 10 hours by road from the nearest full-service hospital, which is in the capital city. A 17-year-old male presents with classical findings of acute appendicitis. You've never done an appendectomy yourself, but when you're a resident... Uh, you assisted on three or four of them during a surgery rotation just, just a couple of years ago. Now, the hospital staff uh, say that they believe their scalpels, sutures, and instruments in the OR storeroom, and the autoclave was working fine a few months ago. Okay. So should what do you do? I mean, acute appendicitis. Uh, hard to say. No CT scan. Uh, there's peritoneal signs. Oh, peritoneal signs. Got a positive McFarney Yeah. Of not, of not uh, providing care beyond your yeah. scope of practice. Yeah. Um talking about Hippocrates said that you should not take a knife to someone
1: yeah, yeah as, far as, as far as the hypochetic knows uh, that Hippocrates um,
0: says that okay. you can't a position about trying to do more research a yeah okay so but hey you're 10 hours away from the capital city on a bumpy road Yes. Yeah. or something, yeah, death, sepsis. So have a good discussion with uh, with the patient. Kind of tell them some of the risks, and and kind of something that you alluded to. Maybe it's time to look a little more deeply as far as some other opportunities. It might be the hospital's 10 hours away by by car, but hey, there might be a flight. You know, you never know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they think they've got some too, um, and one of the nurses used to give anesthesia there. Okay, so l- let's let's. Change this up a little bit. You are an experienced general surgeon, okay? You've taken out hundreds, hundreds of appendices in your uh, in the last 12 years. How does that affect this? I've
1: heard of a surgeon did
0: it on Yeah, right. I think there's a YouTube video. No, maybe not. <laughs> But again, I mean, they think the autoclave is working. They think they can get stuff sterilized. They kind of have to sort of dust off the, the table. So so to me what's interesting, so we used to run into this periodically. So we would have rural year docs. So the situation in Ecuador was people would have a six-year medical training, which would finish with an in-hospital internship, and then they would go out to remote areas, and they would encounter patients like this. Um, Something that hasn't come up yet, what is the appropriate treatment of acute appendicitis? So th- that's actually fascinating. And there's, there's, a, there's probably about 20 years worth of, of uh, evidence that IV antibiotics are actually a very reasonable approach to treating acute appendicitis. So there's, a, I'll give the, the reference a little later, but there was a New England Journal article last, month, last year that reviews the evidence. And actually only about, so, so like 80 to 90% people of people with acute appendicitis do fine at one month uh, if they've been treated with IV antibiotics. About half of them need uh, an appendectomy within five years. So starting some ceftriaxone, giving some methotrexate, and putting them in the ambulance actually could be a much better choice for this man. So. You have to be really careful and think about all the different options. Now, down the road, you know, when he gets to the hospital and they've got everything they need and they always do this, uh, they might choose to do the appendectomy because several months from now he might be in such a remote area and have a problem again. So, um, anyway, something to think about. Okay. A multiparous woman, so a woman who's had many children, uh, from a remote area presents to your hospital apparently at term, after having been in labor for two days. She appears exhausted. Her vital signs are normal. Her vaginal exam is seven centimeters, zero station, eighty percent. So she's well along in active phase labor, but she's uh, apparently remote from delivery. She's got clear fluid. The fetal heart rate is kind of low at one hundred five. It is low, and there's minimal variability. So you're monitoring this lady and the baby's not looking good. She's having contractions every two to three minutes. You let her know you might need to have a C-section, but she says she cannot have surgery without her husband's consent, and that the husband should arrive soon. You give some IV fluid. You adjust her position several times, and an hour later, her cervix has not changed. Her fetal heart rate is now 100 with prolonged variable D-cells for the 50s and 60s. This baby looks really scary No variability. Her husband has arrived, but refuses a C-section. Okay. Now what? Another comment? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maleficence. Yeah, so she's saying explain carefully to the patient and the husband about the need to have the C-section, about your concerns about about the baby, and then again we're trying to balance her principle of autonomy with non-maleficence or beneficence. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, has anything else been tried to augment labor? So... so Actually, augmenting labor probably wouldn't be good for, for baby right now. Baby's in a bad way. But, again, if I, I suppose you could think maybe if there's absolutely no way to go with the C-section, maybe you could get the baby out quicker that way. But normally if we were augmenting labor in a situation like this, we would back off on the things we were giving to, to give baby a, a break. But good good thinking. Yeah. Um, just like a general question. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is like that's very much a culture of the husband makes the decision. Right. So, therefore, that kind of gets rid of the autonomy of the woman, whether or not we agree with that. I don't know how
0: you deal with that. Like, when your ethics as a doctor in America are in contrast with the ethics of other doctors. Right. So, hopefully, everybody heard that comment. Is it a. American ethics or Western ethics versus the country you're in, and which one wins out. Okay, so for those of us that care for immigrants and refugees in this country, we see this sort of thing also. So this isn't just something from far away. This is something that we face um, you know, in this country as well. Um, sure. But
1: one other complicating
0: factor to that is some countries have a cultural ethic. Mm-hmm. That uh. differs. We served in Uganda. Yeah. They have a British medical system Yeah. and
1: British laws. Yeah. But the community still has its own ethical yep.
0: convictions. Yeah, and we could. In the go-
1: place of doing something legally, which
0: yeah. might be against the culture. Okay, so the difference between the law in place and what happens culturally. So, um, and I, I actually got another case that kind of addresses that a little more. So what, what do you do in a situation like this? I think part of the the situation that I didn't understand, uh, you know, this is somebody from a remote area that was brought in by air, MAF have flew, flew her in. So so let's say we do a C section, okay, and she gets pregnant again, she's gonna need a C section next time, right? You do V backs in the jungle? <laughs> No, and I'm just saying, think about these things. So I I wouldn't want this woman who's maybe delivered on her own or with some help in a remote jungle community, if she'd had a previous C-section, I don't think I would want her to try delivering on her own out there. That wouldn't be ideal. So we're going to kind of move along a little bit, but there were some cultural issues about how generally, I mean, I heard this from a lot of husbands, um, and it was hard to hear it was kind of a two-part thing. You know, soy dueño de ella. In other words, you know, like she's mine, and not in a romantic sense. It was more like an, an ownership sense. And then the other thing is if you operate on her, she won't be good for any work. Okay? Those were hard things to hear. Um, so, and, and sometimes, in some places, uh, the feeling could potentially be we might lose this child, but this might be better for her health and well-being. Again, these were the hardest ones to, to deal with. And we definitely lost babies because people refused C-sections. Yeah. So very difficult. Right. Exactly. I don't remember a case that was that horrible. Because, um, I mean, you could be, yeah, not to get into all the obstetrics, but you know, this would be this, it, you could continue to, to try to induce after the baby died, and you might, you know, do a surgical vaginal delivery. In other words, you know, forceps or, or a vacuum. But it's true. There's no guarantee. Yeah. No, they're they're not they're not easy. They're not easy. Okay. One quick comment. We've got a few more cases. Yeah, I think I think it was understood that even though the doctors say that the baby's at a big risk, uh, we still don't want the C-section. Yeah. So these are are hard ones. Okay, here we go. And we actually see this in the U.S. uh, also. A middle-aged man presents to your hospital, uh, which is run by an American mission organization, with a two-year history of a reducible inguinal hernia that becomes uncomfortable with manual labor. After being examined by your German surgeon, he is sent to the administrator's office to schedule the surgery. He's told he must come up with $150, which is half the cost of the surgery, before being admitted and returns to the surgeon's office to plead his case. The surgeon storms into the administrator's office, irate that this man is being denied care because he is poor. So what's the principle going on here? Justice. Justice. Yeah, this is a hard one. So, so many, many mission hospitals, uh, it's not like all charitable care. We ask folks that if, if they can pay a portion. Um, and, I mean, does this man need to have his hernia fixed today or tomorrow? No, he's had this for a couple of years. Um, you know, it only bothers him when he, when he works. So is there any reason that the German surgeon might be particularly upset about this? Yeah, exactly. He comes from a country where healthcare is considered a right of everyone. So, you know, the thought of here I am with my family, my pediatrician, you know, wife and our kids, and, and here we are and we're here to provide care to poor people in Ecuador. And we can't. You're tying our hands because you're demanding $150 from this man. And it wasn't quite so hard for, for Americans and, again, our, our policy was if it was an emergent situation, yeah, no problem. We admit you. We operate. We provide medical care. We talk about finances later. Um, but if it's a, an elective case, you know, that can be scheduled, that was our policy. But it was interesting that we would, we would be at odds with our European colleagues over things like this. Okay. And, and it caused conflict. Actually, this, this family ended up leaving and founding a hospital somewhere else where I guess they probably ended up with similar financial rules eventually, too. But Okay, so you are counseling a 38-year-old, uh, G6P5004. Um, so this is a lady that's had six pregnancies, had five deliveries, and four of those kids are still living. She's at 34 weeks, so she's about six weeks from, from term, uh, full term. She's on, uh, you're talking to her about birth control options. She's had two previous C-sections, and the plan is to eventually perform the scheduled C-section for this delivery. She's interested in having a tubal ligation done at that time. You ask the nurse in the outpatient clinic for a consent form, but she advises you that it cannot be signed today because the patient's husband is not present to co-sign. So you're surprised at this, and you do a quick Internet search and discover that the country you're working in has passed a law two years ago that allows a woman to access birth control services, including surgical sterilization, without her husband's consent. You are appalled at the misogynistic hospital policy and gear up for battle to get your patient the tubal ligation she deserves. Can you believe that they are not letting her make this decision? (laughs) Okay, Any, any thoughts about what's going on here? Why in the world... There's a law on the books, kind of like what we were talking about. There's a law on the books that says she can make this decision, and yet there's a hospital policy against it. What man put that policy into place? Can you believe that? Well, I mean, was the policy just a holdover from previous and it's never got changed? Uh, no, it was actually changed for a short period of time. That's kind of a clue. Yeah. You might be worried about nothing. Right. Because maybe you will happily also sign it. Yeah. So that's kind, of, that's kind of the practical approach. I mean, she's, she's not in labor now. You know, maybe we just like talk to the husband next time. But what if the husband's against it? Right. You know, yeah. So, so when the law went through, the hospital had the policy briefly that, yes, the woman could decide. But what they found out was that sometimes husbands would get very upset about this. She was, uh, the woman would be put at risk of, of violence or being abandoned. So, uh, and then there, there was like legal problems for the hospital too uh, from, from some of these husbands. So they ended up saying, no, we want to talk to both folks and we really want to get both to agree that this is what they want to do as a couple. So I I remember talking to a missionary from Malawi, and they said, yeah, they had a similar sort of issue in their hospital, but then they had a committee that would sometimes be be called to to, discuss these things. Like maybe if the woman was in an abusive relationship, and she's trying to to get away from this guy, and she's got the support of her family, or maybe she's already been abandoned. If she's been abandoned and she's legally married, we're going to let her sign anyway. But they looked at the cases really really carefully. So again, sometimes you look at these things coming from outside and it's like, what are they thinking? How in the world, you know, what century are we in? Why can't she make this decision on her own? Um, I think we've got just a couple more minutes. Yeah, right. Well, uh, fortunately, when she came back in a week or two, the husband was all in also and signed and it wasn't a problem. But again, if if he had said no, then it would have potentially been a problem. So we didn't have this system, but in that other hospital in Malawi, again, they had a system to kind of work through these things. Okay. All right, I'll do this one quickly. American Jehovah's Witness missionaries have recently made great strides in a town about two hours from your rural hospital. One morning, one of these missionaries arrives with a young man who has had several episodes of hematemesis, so vomiting up blood, during the past two days, his vital signs are normal. His hemoglobin is 9.1, so he's, he's, he's anemic. His abdomen is soft with minimal epigastric tenderness, no rebound. Stool is brownish-black and heme-positive, so he is, he's bleeding. Okay, You advise hospital admission for IV proton pump inhibitor, so that's uh, what we use for ulcers and the like. Prompt upper endoscopy and close monitoring and warn that blood transfusion and or surgery might eventually be necessary. So at this point, the missionary presents you with a pamphlet that describes how there are many other forms of treatment for anemia, making blood transfusion unnecessary in all situations. Um, Looking at the missionary who's offering to pay for the treatment, so this is the Jehovah's Witness missionary, the patient refuses any potential blood transfusion. The Jehovah's Witness missionary presses you to promise that if admitted, blood transfusion will not be done under any circumstances. Okay, so the principle involved here. Pardon? Well, that's actually interesting. Non-maleficence, maybe the Jehovah's Witness missionary feels like if you give this man a blood transfusion, you are damning him to hell. Right? That would be non-maleficence in his view, potentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's an excellent approach, and I wish I'd been that level-headed to do that. Uh, it didn't turn out quite that way, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was very very frustrating. So um, yeah, and again, I, I I agree, it's mostly a true autonomy sort of a thing. We really want to find out what the patient thinks, and the patient might not have even known that getting treatment was was an option because that wasn't very common. All right. So we got through several of these. So you know, I, I think, in, in conclusion, the ethical challenges that we face uh, serving in the developing world oftentimes involve cross-cultural differences in values, beliefs, experiences, and I, I do think that mutual respect to try to work through these things and try to understand what people are, are coming, uh, where people are coming from, is an important uh, principle to apply. And and the the importance of really being humble and open and learning and trying to take the long view on these things is really, really important. It doesn't always make them easier, but you do learn, and that helps you um, do better next time. So if folks are interested in further educational resources, um, here's a few things you can can look at as far as um, some publications and websites. And uh, if folks are interested in some of the references, Um, I've got those here, too. You could maybe come up for those. Okay, all right. I think we're about out of time. Thanks very much. I hope that was helpful. It wasn't just irritating and annoying. (laughs) Um, And hopefully gets you ready for what you might face or continue to face. So thanks very much.